0: The briefing today implies people's creativity by embracing the wonder of change. It seeks inspiration from Maverick innovators and change makers to share their stories, experiences, and dreams. Frank Snowden once said All pandemics afflict society through the specific vulnerabilities people have created by their relationship with the environment, other species, and each other. Today, such vulnerabilities show the lack of inclusion, anticipation and adaptation of human beings. The economy and the society at large are mainly built of a single mindset. Diversity is not often included when thinking, designing and making decisions for and of the futures. Today, I'm joined by Jose Ramos, who has extensive experience in future studies. Jose is also founder at Action Foresight and Senior Consulting Editor at the Journal of Future Studies. Welcome, Jose, and thank you to be here with me at the briefing today.
1: Oh, thank you uh, so much, Mattia. It's great to be here with you.
0: Honored to have you just before Christmas, uh, so many thanks. Let's start from where is your passion? What drives you to look into future studies?
1: Yeah, well, I, I say that early years, um, you know, a, a lot of future studies resonated with me. Um, I was very fascinated with social change. I, I was part of, uh, Peter Bishop's social change course in Houston. And, um, you know, I read end to end, um, so and Johan Galtung's book on macro history and macro historians. So I think in the early days really fascinated by social change and, um, and also, you know, in general, uh, I have a more of an activist disposition. So, uh, I care about the big challenges that we're facing as a society, as a planetary civilization, uh, and I wanna see us be able to tackle those. I think in the early days, as I learned more and more about future studies, I became more and more, um, let's say, what's the word I would use? Um, Disillusioned with the lack of connection with action. I found that the people in the field were uh, very attracted to the speculative uh, and the imaginative. And I think that's a very important thing. And I think future studies holds a very important place uh, for imagination, for speculation, uh, for that kind of socially scientific creativity. But at the same time, um, I was always asking, well, how does this? How does this uh, loop back? How does this link back to what we do today? You know, if we know that that a particular issue is such a important issue, we have to do more than simply uh, understand it. We have to do more than speculate about it. We have to be able to uh, formulate um, responses to that at a personal and community and social level so so i think there was a bit of disillusionment as well so that led me into looking at action research as a way that uh that future studies could loop back into the um a process of change you know action research is a very grounded process of change and it it, there's dozens and dozens and dozens of methodologies within action research. And, and even a lot of action research uses uh, futures thinking in different ways. So it made a whole lot of sense. So I think my early days were really sort of uh, focused on that. But more, more more broadly, I had a very strong interest in systemic change. Uh, and. Uh, And I was part of the anti-globalization movement in the early days, uh, going to some protests and carefully following the World Social Forum that started in Porto Alegre in Brazil and moved around the world. And, uh, and so my PhD really was focused on, um, you know, because Even at that time, 2005, when I started my PhD, the idea of globalization was very salient and very current. Uh, I think it's still current and still salient. But but I I knew that this neoliberal trajectory we were on was not going to work. It was fundamentally so many of us did. the World Social Forum had begun to do this whole process of exploring alternatives. It began to bring people in from, you know, from hundred, you know, hundreds of countries really, to ask what's possible. You know, the, the their motto was "Another world is possible," and people were talking about different ways of doing the economy and uh, and new political economic approaches and. So, so I found that very inspiring. So I ended up doing my PhD on the world social forum and on the alternative globalization movement. And that took me, you know, that was, that was a really good experience. It took me to Mumbai, to the world social forum there and Caracas and Venezuela world social forum there and did a lot of work around in Melbourne and Australia on that. So, uh, so yeah, my passion I think is, is, um, is understanding systemic change um, and really linking up uh, the agency of people and communities. I think so many of us feel overwhelmed by change. We feel almost disenfranchised by the uh, political and economic and sometimes cultural structures that exist. And for me, it's so important for, People to rebuild a sense of agency and power uh, that can lead to hope and
0: optimism. Does that also speak about belongingness? What do you mean by that? What I mean by that is simply are still people feeling belonging to their place, to their surrounding, to, to the society at large that we live in? In in the last few months, years, we saw movement rising from any part of the world, the MeToo hashtag, the Black Lives Matter, and also geopolitically there are, you know, changing and paradigm shifting so quickly, people are fleeing their country. So, you know, this change that you mentioned, is actually scaring people, you know, climate change. Some people are protesting, some others are not taking action. Now we see governments, you know, at governance, at that level, we see people, policy that invites to look for finding solution so this part of belonging, and that's what I mean by asking you if this involves also a feeling of belongingness. Are we, are we still feeling part of the entire system, or the gap is just, you know, enlarging and enlarging, you know, and we are not yeah. part of the system mm-hmm. anymore.
1: Yeah. You know, one thing I did identify in the during the PhD was that there's this uh, democratic deficit. And what that basically means is that, you know, over the last two decades, the expectations for participation in change have increased, but the actual power that citizens have in relation to the state has decreased. Mm. So the, 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 you know, manner of speaking, you know, the stranglehold that lobbying interests have on the state in many ways has increased in some countries, while well, I'm thinking specifically in the United States and Australia, uh, which does paint my perception, but, um, but all over the world, over the last two decades, there's been a lot of experiments in participation, in engaging people, uh, such as, you know, participatory budgeting in Porto Alegre, and all around the world, uh, but also experiments in digital democracy, things like um, liquid democracy. Uh, and, and, and there's a real desire among people to be engaged in the, the issues that matter. Um, people need time, they do need time, they do need space to do that. But given those opportunities, definitely, uh, and at the same time, we find that you know a lot of the things that we've cared about has um, has uh, it's so difficult to create change when uh, the political and the economic system are coupled uh, so that incumbents can perpetuate their power. So I think I think it's I think we're almost at a breaking point right now. You know, we have so many good approaches to participation and new approaches to governance. And at the same time, you know, our political systems have been failing us. I mean, I know some places are, are doing better than others, so I don't wanna just over-characterize it, but
0: yeah. yeah. And sometimes sometimes, um, you know, in, in your work, you mentioned uh, anticipatory governance or anticipatory experimentation. Um, is that relates to this way of um, action research and trying to explore um, and anticipate what new innovation um, could be, new new way, new form of innovation could be, or is something different?
1: Um, well, the, those two things are slightly different, but they are related to what you're talking about. So an- anticipatory experimentation is um, is really a fusion of critical future studies and sort of, um, you know, more well-established sort of innovation thinking. So in a lot of, in a lot of innovation thinking, uh, people move into ideation fairly quickly or people start with ideation. They say, okay, well let's, let's come up with some ideas and then let's carry this through a, um, a kind of design process and get to, um, uh, get to an experiment and I had already kind of been doing that with action research for a while and One of the things that I realized was that um, One of the real strengths of future s- studies and futures thinking was the ability to challenge assumptions mm-hmm. and challenge the assumptions about the future um, And one of the places where for example Sohail in Ayatollah starts with his work is to challenge the used future challenge the prevailing images that we have about the future that are already painting our perception. They're already shaping our options. In fact, they're already limiting our options because we have this particular image of the future. So the first thing to do is really to challenge that. And the way to challenge that is to do the empirical research. Look look for the weak signals. Look for the emerging issues. develop scenarios uh, and I have a few other methods that I use to do that. And then once you have a, um, once you've already emptied the cup, that's the metaphor I use, you know, you have to empty the cup to put something new in the cup. Then, then you can create new assumptions or even a new vision. You don't have to have, you don't have to have a new vision, but you definitely have to start with new assumptions about the future. If you're going to, Um, ideate in any way that's different than the prevailing thinking at hand. And this also links with that neurological research that you'd be aware of. That's basically saying that uh, when you ask people to think about the future and you put them in an MRI machine, that part of the brain that lights up is actually the memory centers. Uh, And, you know, we've seen paper after paper sort of, you know, um, say this. So, 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 you know, our, we already have a particular bias around the way that we uh, approach change, which is we project continuity. You know, we, 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 it's just our, our kind of baseline really. Um, this is why people like Jake Dunnegan and Stuart Candy talk about memories of the future, implanting memories of the future. And this is why the role of science fiction is so important because it actually gives us access to alternative memories that we wouldn't otherwise have about the future. Um, it's such a phenomenally important social resource. Um, so, so you have this kind of predilection that human beings have that may have worked in evolutionary, in, you know, in, you know in, in prehistory when change was very slow, you know, over hundreds and hundreds of years, that, may, that, that was an actual asset because we're cultural beings. So we, we build up cultural assumptions and cultural patterns. Uh, and then we carry those out generation after generation. That's a very powerful trait. Uh, and something that, that in, in a, from an evolutionary point of view, it's, it's an advantage, right? But in an era of incredibly fast change and challenges that we can't really imagine, it actually becomes a liability so that's where you, that's why you have to start with challenging that used future because uh, it's such a powerful um, in a sense uh, yeah it's it's a, such a powerful force then from there build up the the new visions or the new assumptions and there's another strength of futures thinking what are some new assumptions we can consider about the future um, you know you can see how most countries around the world were not prepared for uh, for the pandemic, Taiwan was Taiwan took the SARS epidemic very seriously, and they built into their governmental systems the capacity to respond to that level of crises. Um, so, uh, but most countries didn't. So you can see how you know that that, that kind of culturally patterned learning is so fundamental. So from there then, okay, now let's come up with ideas. Let's do the ideation that's linked to, you know, emptying the cup of the used future and building some new assumptions or a new vision. So that way, when you begin to ideate, it's very much aligned with that preferred future. It's very much aligned with new thinking about the future um, that's grounded in um, both empirical and, and other realities, uh, and then go from there. Go to the experimentation, and if those experiments begin to work, then you scale them. Uh, if, if they don't, then you you know try uh, uh, different uh, experiments. So that's the idea. It's really that that sort of um, you know if you think of a Venn diagram, it would really be critical future studies on one end, and you know sort of experimentation based innovation on the other, and how they come together.
0: Yeah. So the, the anticipation experimentation is, is really challenging. the the use futures, challenging your assumption, making new assumption and, and then test them and see how they, they go. And if you, you receive positive feedback, you scale them up. But the most important thing is actually challenging the assumption and the use futures because we use our memories to build the futures.
1: See, this is where I differ a little bit because, you know, I I feel so strongly about action in the context of futures thinking that I, you know, futurists will will really gravitate towards the use future side, challenge the use future and and come up with new futures. And the design innovation people really focus on the ideation and the the experimentation. What I'm saying is we gotta do both and we
0: gotta do them both equally and in an integrated way. And on that, I completely agree with you. Building futures and challenging assumptions while actually acting on the present and try and test something and you know, ideate, we can come up with more adaptable, flexible and stronger outcomes. Well, I mean, Yes. And,
1: and I think the main point I would make with that is that if you're ideating without doing that, um, how, how are those ideas gonna be any different to the assumptions you've already held? How, how, how do you know that it's gonna fit in the context of change?
0: Absolutely, Jose. And my understanding here is that the need to challenge the assumptions and the used future, we need to have an underlying mindset change, a shift in the way we think and do design and innovation that actually require a participation approach to invite different stakeholders around the same table in order to challenge those assumptions, you know, the current assumption that as thrown us to hear and including those new point of views of people that were already there but by including and building a diverse team around innovation we can um, challenge and and ideate at the same time so the action research is um, ful- fulfilling its definition
1: yeah, that's right. I mean, re- really, it's the diversity, which is the most powerful and disruptive element in terms of finding um, challenging assumptions, challenging use futures, and formulating inclusive, powerful visions. I think um, you can you can you can see, for example, the difference uh, between something like the Davos Forum that um, very very much about um, the existing, um, you know, sort of modernist industrial industrialization, economic globalization, and, and a uh, process like the World Social Forum that produces um, powerful visions from indigenous people, from neo-humanists, from cosmopolitans, from relocalists, from peer-to-peer. Uh, you know a- activists, from um, feminists, and from um, a whole other swath of perspectives that create this phenomenal richness in terms of how we might see the future so it's it's inclusion is at the heart, as you say of um, of participatory futures approach but but also just a, an approach that actually does challenge the youth's future in a healthy way, in a way that we can begin to reconstruct our thinking. um, And and, 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 you know, the the basis of participatory futures is to be able to include those people that have a stake in the future. And so the report that we wrote for Nesta, uh, John Sweeney and Kathy Peach and um, Lori Smith and with all the support from the Global Swarm was really you know in that sort of spirit it's you know how can we enhance our thinking about the future and include people uh include all the people who have a stake in that future and i I think that's that was the kind of ethos and spirit
0: and for anyone listening i would highly recommend to check the report and the game that these amazing guys put together for the nesta group also, there is another thing that you talk about often, and it's called cosmolocalism. And I find very fascinating the concept behind that and how this could play with participatory futures and system change. You know, cosmolocalism, there are two parts of the world, cosmo and localism. The local part is one place and the cosmo, that means in the broader aspect. I'm really keen to know more about this.
1: Yeah, so co- cosmolocalism is a, uh, uh, if you think of um, Foucault's genealogical work, um, it's a kind of, it's a kind of um, you might call it a, a, a weak signal or a weak, uh, a weak discourse that has pulsated through history. Um, sometimes it's been a little stronger and sometimes uh, a little weaker. But, um, you know, for example, cosmopolitan as a discourse goes way back. It goes back several hundred years or arguably even several thousand years if you go back to the to the uh, classic, you know, sort of Greek period. But the idea of cosmolocalism has sort of pulsated over the last sort of decade and a half. Um, you had development people or post-development, you know, the critiques of development, Development um, as a whole industry is in massive crisis right now. Um, It's been an approach that um, has uh, a whole lot of baggage and assumptions attached with it. And if you look at the sort of, you know, vast swath of different projects, um, it's a very mixed bag. It's a very mixed bag between um, big industrial projects that have been incredibly... Um, harmful and, and have displaced a lot of people and have created a lot of um, uh, social and ecological disruption and also some really good stuff. Uh, usually the good stuff is the stuff on the ground that, that kind of comes from the grassroots, a bit like the Grameen Bank, um, the work by Mohammed Yunus. Um, but there were critiques early on um, and people were trying to find a new way of thinking about um, development. So um, Wolfgang Sachs was, you know, he, he wrote um, on post-development, and he began sort of thinking about um, this idea of cosmopolitan localism. Um, another social theorist named Boaventura de Sousa Santos talks about um, insurgent cosmopolitanism. And, uh, and, you know, other people as well um, who talked in similar lines. And when I did my PhD research, I, I really, what happens is you begin to kind of, um, you know, discourses are kind of like distillations of particular ways of thinking. So there's a cosmopolitan discourse, relocalist discourse, peer-to-peer discourse. Um, but on, on their own, they, they don't necessarily carry the full um, richness or complexity uh, that, they, that, they, that they can. And it's only when you begin to kind of understand the relationships between these different movements and ideas. And so what emerged for me was really um, this idea, I, 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 I drew a lot of inspiration from Michelle Baldwin's work on um, the peer-to-peer economy and peer-to-peer production. Uh, Where he talked about how uh, essentially you have um, open source movements were creating value um, through uh, through stigmergy, through a process where one person built on the next person's contribution, a bit like the Linux, uh, you know, development of Linux and Apache, and uh, and we also saw that with 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 social platforms like um, Wikipedia. So peer-to-peer became a very important sort of idea. And at the same time, uh, in, in in the alternative globalization movement and in this social change movement, there was a very s- strong understanding that development had to happen at a local level in a way in which we could um, uh, be very sensitive to local needs and, uh, and that development priorities were driven by um, locals. And, and then there was this other idea that we have this, this, this almost planetary space of thinking. Uh, David Held talks about communities of fate. Um, and you have a whole number of other thinkers who are, are self-professed cosmopolitans like um, um, Derrida and uh, Jürgen Habermas um, and many others, uh, Ulrich Beck who basically were saying, um, you know, we really have to think of ourselves as a planetary community. So it was really the fusion of these different ideas that began to, um, in, my, in my thinking, began to kind of coalesce around the idea of cosmolocalism. Um, the first time I began talking about that was around 2013, 2012, actually. I gave a lecture in Singapore um, I was teaching in Singapore at the time. And then in 2013, I started a makerspace in, in Footscray in Melbourne and talk, just talk, you know, started talking about ideas around cosmolocalism as well uh, in the context of the maker movement. And the basic idea is that digits can move very easily around the world. Uh, uh, and he calls that um, the immaterial. So we have the material and the immaterial. And Michelle Bollins basically says that we've made, um, digits expensive, um, but physical, the physical cheap or the material cheap. So what he means by that is, uh, we, we, we don't have true cost for what we take from the earth or what we put back into the earth, but we're creating artificial scarcity when it comes to intellectual property, when it comes to, uh, the legacy of human knowledge. And that point really resonated with me. And so the idea is that actually, all around the world, we're creating knowledge and we're, cre- we're, and we're forming this global design commons that can um, uh, help people do local development in many different places. And uh, from that, um, we should be able to uh, take open IP, the legacy of human knowledge, and do development in lots of different areas. So from around 2014, 15, um, I began doing research with the Peer to Peer Foundation and with uh, the Peer to Peer Lab folk. And we began to uncover different cases around the world where people were doing this. You know, a cooperative in France that mutualizes designs around organic farming equipment um, a, uh, an open source car company in China and Silicon Valley, um, a, um, uh, a biohacking lab in Oakland that's um, working on open source insulin. Uh, so many of these examples, you know, all around the world were popping up and what we realized was uh, these were the seeds of change. You know, open source, approaches to creating knowledge, where you're pulling knowledge, and then people from around the world can take that. Uh, They can use that and they can say, okay, well here, I wanna do this. We know it's a weak signal and we know it's an emerging issue, but we feel that it's the basis for another political economy. And one of the reasons we feel so strongly about it is because think of the climate crisis and think of how much change we need from all these different communities around the world. You know, in a way we need a revolution in um, localizing change and drawing down carbon. But if the IP for that's locked up, if it's all in patents, it's gonna slow it all down. Let's liberate the immaterial, let's liberate The human legacy of knowledge and design and problem-solving and allow all these different localities everywhere to use what they can from that right a lot of it's not going to be useful but some of it might right to both solve local problems local sustainability problems create livelihoods and address the climate crisis um, we don't think we have the, the luxury of staying with the current system which is um, uh, leading us over the cliff edge. Uh, we say liberate the human legacy of knowledge and design so that localities all over uh, can build their resilience, can solve problems, and also can be part of a planetary community, can draw down carbon. Uh, and 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 be uh, responsible planetary
0: citizens, and delivering a positive impact at planetary scale. And open innovation has been around for many years, right. but never took a leap forward to make it really strong and relevant across industries and and academia. It's always been there because you know we're always talking about IP proprietary expert of innovation or methodology, but now that we are here in these things all together, and if we want to use the participatory metaphor, sharing knowledge and sharing way to make up and de- designing a better future, it's it's fundamental, it's very profound to building a better futures.
1: Absolutely, absolutely.
0: Recently, I start asking to my guests, is, what is their current book or the latest book that they've been reading? What's yours?
1: Well, the book I'm reading at the moment is um, uh, Arturo Escobar's Design for the Pluriverse. And he also talks about cosmolocalism as well, uh, much in the vein of Wolfgang Sachs uh, and uh, Ezio Manzini as well. So there's a bit of a confluence there around a a new approach to um, they don't use the word development. That's a bad, a bad word for them. Um, It's almost as bad as third world, (laughs) but, uh, but, but it's, it's a, it's a nice um, it's a really nice read. It's a really uh, lovely uh, window into an incredibly, powerful and incisive thinker who's um, very much aligned with the commons um, our social and ecological commons and how we do change uh in a way that enhances um the people and the living systems of um of localities everywhere yeah
0: absolutely outstanding Jose, thank you so much for your time, for sharing your, wow, I, I can't even, you know, give, give a size to your expertise and knowledge and that you share with us today. Um, I'm pleased, really pleased to finish the year 2020 with you and I look forward for a more participatory 2021. Thank you so much, Mattia. It's an absolute pleasure.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: The briefing today unplugs people's creativity by embracing the wonder of change. It seeks inspiration from maverick innovators and changemakers to share their stories, experiences and dreams.